0: That intro. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, yes, indeed. Brother Wingate. Oh, well, we've been fighting in the jungle for a long time together, me and John. Yes, sir, eh? Hey. Ain't everybody that knows how to use a machete. Everybody's candidate. I promise you truth. I promise you beauty. I promise you eternal great things when I make it. Uh, would you please bring it down there a little bit there? Bring it up big, please. in dogs it's, you know, the tip of my tank terrible when you when you forget your own background it really is like the other day I'm sitting in Needix and me and this guy are having this argument over the pickle And and uh, oh we're, we're very politely but uh, it's definitely going on there and he's I can hear him he's talking to his friend and he's talking about one of these candidates and I thought it was such an apt expression and it slipped my mind he said up uh, ah, guy. And he named the name of the candidate. He said, oh, that guy can't talk. Shucks. had something to do with a boot. And he was referring to the ineptitude of the candidate and his basic inability to grasp the realism of a situation when he's confronted by it. And uh, I, 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 I thought to myself at that minute, I'm going to write that down because that's a very colorful expression that certainly describes at least 45 candidates that I've known and I said, "Excuse me, sir. Would you repeat that?" He said, "What do you want?" And I says, "Would you repeat that, sir?" So repeat what? And I says, "Well, what did you say about uh, the man who's running for America's highest office?" There's a pregnant pause, and he says, "That bum." And I says, "Well, yes, that bum." That's the way you put it, because I got you know a tense situation being developed there, and a certain need. You just don't raise your voice too much, you know. i we got a hot dog stuck in your ear, you know, so. Uh, I yeah that that, that bum. He said, well, uh, that, that that bum! I uh, he can't. And I'll be doggone! Uh, he said it again. It, it was so apt. And three guys down the line. One guy got up and threw the mustard at him. And you know it, it started to heat up a little bit. And I'm out on Sixth Avenue almost instantly. I'm you know basically chicken. And I'm getting up and I figure i ought to call the newsroom. They'd like to be on the spot for that. You know, always on the spot near send Henry Glads down there. You know the. Give you know the magnificent ad lib account of the fight that's breaking out in Sixth Avenue, and it was all over politics. You know, and politics is important these days, and so I meant to write down this phrase, which I thought would make a, a very interesting phrase to use as the title of a, a, maybe a novel. And uh, the man who couldn't— darn, got it! Flip my finger. Anyway, I, 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 I had my notebook out, and I was going to write it down. I always write these notes down when I think you know, I hear great things, and. I'll be doggone if I couldn't find my ballpoint pen. I have this ballpoint pen that's uh, autographed by Donald Duck, and I could not find it. And now it has slipped my mind. I just uh, Any of you know that exp- Do you know that expression, Larry? You don't know anything. Huh? That's what with boots. Well, uh... Well, shucks, well, hell. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? You you know, pick them up, and you lay them down, six, one, half, does the other. And uh, I'm sitting there trying to figure out... Uh, uh, why is it? Why do we forget the most important things in the, that, are, that are part of our life? And, uh what, the, it's on the tip of my tongue. That's it, I remember that one. It's right on the tip of my tongue, but I can't, I can't, well, it wouldn't matter anyway, you wouldn't be interested. Uh, but, of course, uh, there are a lot of things that, uh, man, you got to come to grips with it. The other night I did this show, if you remember, about Colonel Lindbergh, and he flew, if you know, if you, if you remember, or you know, you know the history of it, he flew from, from Long Island and uh, you yeah, know he flew from Long Island all the way over there to Paris now I would like to ask a trivia question if you don't mind I'd just like to bring it up uh, do any of you know the name of the guy who first flew which is a much harder flight by the way who, most, who first flew from Paris to Long Island now there's a guy that's lost in history he went the wrong way you know well, uh, these these are things. Uh, well, see, this is the problem that I have. I'm, I'm constantly thinking about things like that. Now, I I wish I could, you know, I wish I could concentrate on important things like, you know, what Bobby said the other morning. I'm trying to put those things together. What Bobby's been saying, you know, it's not easy. You know, I'm, I'm an old jigsaw puzzle man, but uh, I suppose if you work Chinese nail puzzles, you're better at it. I and mean, that's something else. the old man that used to sit by the hour. He'd come in home at night. And uh, man likes a uh, puzzle, you know. You've, you've uh, you know, Sisyphus. You know who Sisyphus is? Any of you guys out there? Well, I suppose, of course, I can hear three guys in Staten Island as one of them Greeks. Well, that's right. He was one of them Greeks. But uh, never, uh, nevertheless, he had. You know, he's pushing a rock up this hill. A terrible scene. I mean, he kept pushing the rock, and he'd push it up four or five feet, and then it would drop back six feet. And then he'd push it up another nine feet, and it would drop back five feet, and then all the time he figured he was going to make it, you know. And, uh, he was the very first of the puzzle workers. And, uh, that led almost directly to, uh, to American politics. As it, it, Man likes to be confronted with the enigma. Any of you know the Greek myth about the great enigma? You don't. Doesn't anybody tonight know anything? It is raining out, friends. Uh, there's an old e- expression that they used to use in Indiana about what you do when it rains out, about, uh, well, you've heard people say he, he, uh, he didn't know enough to, uh, oh, shucks, coming in out of the rain or something like that, what? yeah, that's it, he didn't know enough to, to, to when to put his hat on in the rain, that's the old expression, that's right, or was it, no, that doesn't sound right, exactly. But these are all things that I suppose are relative, and we don't want to talk about your relatives tonight. Would you please uh, bring on some sickeningly sweet saccharine music here, if you will. We needed something. And said, I want to salute man's ability to come to grips with this, you know, the reality of the time situation in which he finds himself. I wish I could remember that, because that would make a fantastic campaign slogan for the other guy. Have you notice that all these candidates are running these days and they're doing nothing but talking about how crummy the other guy is? Well, that's it's, <laughs> it's a reflection of our time. Oh, that reminds me. Uh, I have a little thing here. I would like to read something to you. If you will please uh, pull the potatoes out of your ears for a minute there and take your mind off that uh, enigmatic remark that Tiny Tim made to Johnny Carson the other day. Have you noticed that Johnny Carson is looking more and more like a defrocked Franciscan monk with that suit that he wears. Well, of course, this is part of the fantasy world of our time. There was one guy came into Downey's tonight, I swear, I swear had taken the vows of one of the more esoteric Tibetan sects. Did you see that clown? Yeah, that's one with the round haircut with the great big symbolic thing hanging with the medieval chain around his neck. Yeah, you know, well, that's something else. When I saw who he was with, I knew he'd taken some kind of vows. I'm, I think it was a he. I'm sorry. I don't want to get the, you know, I don't want to be called technically inept here. I'd like to read something to you, friends, if you may, if you bring that up a little bit there, Harold. There it is. Bring it up there, Brady. Right there. Oh, there's nothing like Diet Pepsi on a rainy night. Trip it down. There are many who say that a dog has his day... And a cat has a number of lives. There are others who think that a lobster is pink and that bees never work in their hives. There are fewer, of course, who insist that a horse has a horn and two humps on his head. And a fellow who jests that a mare can build nests is as rare as a donkey that's red. Yet, in spite of all that, I have moments of bliss. (laughs) For I cherish a passion for bones... And though doubtful of biscuits, I'm willing to risk it and love to chase rabbits and stones. But my greatest delight is to take a good bite at a calf that is plump and delicious. And if I indulge in a bite at a bulge, let us hope that you won't think me too vicious. That's the song of a mischievous dog. That's the story of a dog. Now, the reason I read this, I will award a brass figurine with bronze oak leaf palm, if you can tell me who wrote that. Edgar A. Guest, did you say? Norman Vincent Peale did not write that. I will repeat, there are many who say that a dog has his day and a cat has a number of lives. I'll give you a clue. He wrote it when he was 11. <laughs> that for you. <laughs> that bugs you. What were you writing when you were 11? That's right. He was 11 years old at that time. But, um... I don't know, I I've, uh, the worst moment that I've ever had in politics, you know, I've had a couple of moments in politics, was one time I uh, had the unfortunate uh, experience, because you know, once you have an experience of being really close to what the world considers a great man, you're never the same after that. Uh, you can never quite approach the podium where the candidate is delivering a thunderous address on the evils of the other guy and accept it on toto. Is that the correct phrase on Toto? Well, isn't Toto the name of a dog that was famous in fiction? Or was that the, the late FDR's dog? Where did Toto live? Where? Oklahoma City. Are you out of your bird? Get out of here. What kind of talk this is this? But, uh, you know, you'll you, you accept. Uh, come on now. Who is, all, right, all right, I'll ask you a question then. You're interested in, uh, because you know I think I think we better we better start looking at the. uh, Have you noticed that not one person? We will award the brass figurine with bronze oak leaf palm. Seriously, to any person who can tell me who wrote that poem. Well, maybe you can you can uh, you can detect it more by style than anything else. Listen to the style again. Would you please bring me that sneaky music on, if you will, Lawrence? Please. You're looking particularly distinguished tonight. You know, uh, uh, there's one candidate that keeps reminding me of the end. Uh, Well, have you ever seen the Three Stooges when they're playing serious? He reminds me of the end one on the left. Remember him? There are many who say that a dog has his day. Now, this is a dog talking, you know, friends. And a cat has a number of lives. There are others who think that a lobster is pink and the bees never work in their eyes. There are fewer, of course who insists that a horse has a horn and two humps on his head, and a fellow who jests that a mare can build nests is as rare as a donkey that's red. (laughs) Yet in spite of all this, I have moments of bliss, for I have a passion for bones. And though thoughtful and doubtful of biscuits, I'm willing to risk it. I love to chase rabbits and stones, but my greatest delight is to take a good bite at a calf that is plump and delicious, and if I indulge in a bite at a bulge, Let's hope you won't think me too vicious. Okay, bring it up there, please. Bertrand Russell. Oh, he never had style like that in his life. Get out of here. He writes like a bunch of concrete stones falling downstairs. Come on. That's Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell? Now I see somebody just throwing his little Japanese transistor radio on the 6th Avenue Well, that reminds me, friends, speaking of cheap Ray, this is WOR. (laughs) Uh, Uh, Hey, I can't read your sign, honey. You've managed to uh, cleverly hide it, so I can't read it. 29.30. Okay, this is WOR in New York, and uh, we have a little thing in the newsroom. And we'll be right back shortly. I'm still here. Gee, that was interesting. I'm still here. Oh, before we do anything else here, if uh, you're still in the dark out there, friends, and so many of us are in many ways, we would like to recommend that you have this name inscribed right next to your telephone so you'll always have it available in case the dark gets intolerable. Uh, Rosetta, R-O-S-E-T-T-A. You just write that next to your phone, and and, uh, people will think you've got a real scene going. You could write the... Virginia there, or Mabel, but I would suggest Rosetta. Uh, (laughs) This uh, one letter we got from this guy says, "Uh, listen, Shepard, he says, I'm planning to drive my old man out of his bird, and he says, I'm going to arrange the bathroom to have a stroboscopic light effect so that when he throws the switch, pow, he'll be set back 40 years, and uh, he wanted the Rosetta catalog for that. Uh, This is a great electrical company, and they have three fantastic stores here in town, one right off 6th Avenue on 45th. And there's another one at 73 Murray Street, two blocks west of City Hall. And then the third one is at 79 Chambers Street. And they have a new, tremendous 48-page catalog. And all you have to do is write to Rosetta here at WOR. And uh, I got a secret arrangement with the mailroom, and they know that that's a code word. Rosetta, WOR, and they'll send you the catalog. Okay? And... Uh, Somebody called in and said that, that that poem must have been by E. E. Cummings, spelled with a small c. No, it was not E. E. Cummings. It was not Bertrand Russell. It was not Ogden Nash. It was not John Wingate. That poem. Was <laughs> now, the only reason I brought this out is because you know this is the way this is the way most of us fight our lives out in in dismal, total anonymity. What was it that? Uh, Edgar Lear? Oh, come on. He didn't write that. He didn't have that delicate a sense of humor. Edgar, uh, listen, Mr. Lear's humor uh, consisted of hitting people on the head with English salamis. He wrote limericks. And uh, I would say, next to the pun, the last refuge for the totally unhum, Frank Rehack? Well, he's that fantastic trombonist. Frank Rehack, who made the sound of Sammy Kaye, national... In a world that uh, was just right on the tip of the ear there, but the no, uh, <laughs> I, I've always said that the limerick, the limerick and the pun are the last refuges of the totally unhumorous. And this guy's got a sense of humor. Now the reason I brought this up is important because I feel that so many of us fight our our worlds out in total anonymity. What was the expression? Who was it who said that uh, most people live their lives? out, uh, let's see, live out their lives in quiet desperation. Who was that? That was not Earl Wilson, was it? Yes, it sounds like Leonard Lyons. This is his literary style. This is pretty much like that. Who was it who said that? Fred Allen? No, although that's close. However uh, these this this is a neither here nor there situation and I would like to salute a little moment of uh, of uh, how can I put it uh, a little moment of borderline terror that occurred recently in Reading Pennsylvania of course reading is a town that is given to that sort of thing but one of our spies sent us a complete report on a little incident that happened two weeks ago in reading I'm holding it up now this will be put into our vast file of trivia for the year 5000 when they dig it up they'll know what things were really like here Uh, would you please bring me a little of that uh, music there yes indeed oh somebody asked me who is your favorite candidate in the current well we don't have any candidates yet do we I mean isn't that what all this brouhaha is about to pick candidates we haven't settled on anybody hey whatever happened to those great old days just a few years ago when guys used to run on the vegetarian party ticket. You remember those guys used to always run? And they were serious. There was one guy... Wasn't there one guy that grew pigs somewhere around here in New York? And, uh... Yeah, that was the Uncle Sam party or something. And the vegetarians used to have a candidate. They were all in there. Of course, things haven't changed much. I've, uh, things haven't changed much. Uh, candidates are still swinging by the... by the, uh... Tea Garden gate. However, uh... I would like to read this little note here from Redding. It uh, comes in by special uh, spy from the Redding Eagle, and the headline reads: "Onlookers Alarmed." That has a certain nineteenth-century quality to it. Onlookers alarmed by falling balloon. Bring <laughs> up that page. Come on, come on, Larry. That's a figure to sneak it in there. there you go. Okay. Now the reason that I I am uh, reading this to you, because I think I think that that uh, these little snippets out of real life illustrate life far better than any fiction. Uh, you know, fiction is dead pretty much today. I think one of the reasons why the publishing world is, is thrashing about is the guys keep writing fictional novels. Robert Burns, oh, geez. It's getting worse and worse. Robert Burns, this is the guy that makes the cigars. Are you kidding me, Robert Burns? Somebody ought to call in here and say the D- Dutch master, huh? Robert Burns, he didn't write that. I'll have to read this again. You poor people. I don't know what's happening here. No, I'm not going to read it again. You, you heard it once. That's enough. Onlookers alarmed by falling balloon. I want you to listen. This is the kind of stuff you don't hear in the news. And this is the kind of news you'd really like to hear. You know, if I hear one more, if I hear one more quote by tape from a from a candidate or a would-be candidate denouncing another candidate for something the other candidate said about the fourth candidate, I think although, what, Dorothy Parker, was it Dorothy Parker or Dorothy Thompson, Dorothy Parker, her remark about Winnie the Pooh, well, I can't use the expression on the air because, you know, radio has to say, but... It, Didn't she say something uh, that makes me want to flow up with an F? (laughs) It looked like something out of Gerald's Vern yesterday to people in Berks and Schoolkill counties, but that wasn't Phineas Fogg flying that helium-filled balloon in a northerly direction just before the rains came. Listen to this mysterious story. The balloon drifted up from the south and passed over Redding about 11 a.m., oblivious to everything but the air currents, which wafted the beautiful, lighter-than-air craft gently northward toward the wilderness of St. Anthony, which we know now as the Blue Mountains. The balloon was piloted, if that's how one guides a balloon, by a 63-year-old woman who refused to be otherwise identified. She was accompanied by an unidentified boy and a younger girl. Think of the scene, friends. Yes, it is a beautiful scene. To the best of anyone's knowledge, the balloon apparently came from the Philadelphia area, passed over the Reading area before noon, and came down in a field near Tuscarora State Park in Locust Valley about 2 p.m. To say that the balloon attracted attention would be to put it mildly. It certainly drew a crowd, and it went so far as to get one coal company employee rather, quote, I shook up. I'm just quoting him here. That's what it says here. The pilot said she decided to bring down the balloon after she became lost. In the rain and the foggy conditions became worse. She guided the balloon toward the field in Locust Valley. That's a good symbolic name. She guided the balloon toward the field in Locust Valley but needed the assistance of some men returning from a fishing trip to get back to terra firma. A couple of men who ended up in her ground crew saw the balloon while returning from a morning fishing. They heard cries from up above them, drifting down through the fog and the rain. Help us! Help! Help us! What a scene. The woman pilot was releasing helium from the bag of her balloon and adjusting her ballast weights to bring the craft down, but was experiencing severe difficulty due to the cross winds. The two men took hold of a rope thrown from the huge orange-colored craft and tried unsuccessfully to pull the balloon down. <laughs> it's interesting. Another man, also returning from fishing, was driving along a sort of balloon. He drove to the field and pitched in. After hauling on the rope to keep the balloon from tangling with the Pennsylvania Power and Light Company power line, the men managed to anchor the balloon to a tree. Within a half an hour, it had drifted to the ground. While the men were struggling to haul the balloon in, an employee of the Locust Valley Coal Company was standing on a breaker with a fellow worker. He stared with fascination at the balloon as it dropped downward. Don't look now, he told his buddy. Don't look now but I think that the sun is dropping on us. Now there is a symbolic remark from a coal heaver. I repeat, don't look now, but the sun is dropping on us. And the other one looks up and says, ah, you better change your brand of giggle juice. You see, there's the earthbound man. There's always some guy that ascribes it to drinking. But this orange balloon was drifting down like the sun. The 63-year-old woman pilot refused to leave the basket of the craft. Now, wait till you hear the rest of this story. It is only just beginning. The 63-year-old woman pilot refused to leave the basket of the craft until it was completely on the ground, and the balloon deflated. She explained, My basket dates back to the late 1880s, and I don't want to lose it. I will not leave this basket. The basket dated from the late 1880s. When the balloon was being deflated, one man standing nearby snipped the air a few times and then turned to the woman pilot, who refused to be named up to this point, refused to give her name, and said, Say, uh, lady, is that what helium smells like? There was a pregnant pause, and she said, No, I just took a nip. I needed one. 63-year-old lady piloting a balloon with two identified kids, and she's now on the ground taking a nip. After the balloon was deflated, the woman went to a nearby telephone and called the ground crew that apparently she had standing by in Lebanon. Shortly after that, the crew arrived, packed up the balloon, and hauled the whole works off, leaving the natives standing around with their jaws agape. The woman had with her 50 letters, which were mailed to from the point she landed so that proof of her destination could be established through the postmarks. All morning, while we were fishing, we were talking about stuff like spaceships. This is one of the guys that had been pulling the balloon down. All morning, we were talking about stuff like spaceships, men from outer space and all that. And if this happens, sometimes I don't know what to think. That is another voice out of that great, vast herd called Vox the, you know the populi just lays, I sometimes I don't know what to think hours and several drinks later he was even less sure that he had not seen LGMs which are known to scientists as little green men after all if that wasn't enough two 13 year old Redding boys out trying their walkie talkies around 11.30pm spotted what they think was quote a USO UFO you know kids always see anything. UFO Scott Smith of Buttonwood Street, called the Redding Eagle last night to say that he and his friend spotted an egg-shaped object going through the air again in a northerly direction. Everything was going north yesterday with flashing lights. Let's <laughs> see, the writer, everything was going north yesterday with flashing lights that changed to nearly every color in the rainbow. Scott said the flashing colors, quote, Hey, they look like they're going around in circles. How else could they go? Now, I just threw this out to let you know that there's more things under the sun than candidates giving speeches. Ladies are flying at 2,000 feet in balloons with unidentified kids. Balloons painted orange. Now, have you ever, have you ever flown in a balloon, friend? Well, did you know that I once knew a sailor who was in the Naval Balloon Corps? I'm not talking about blimps, I'm talking about balloons, that the Navy had balloons. And these balloons were did you did you know that they used balloons in the Civil War? Did any of you know that the first Air Force were guys hanging up in balloons during the Civil War? And they were considered scurvy knaves by the guys below and were considered spies? Yeah, they were spies, they were considered spies because you know that was not cricket. They were up there at the end of a big stick, big rope. And they had these glasses, and they're spotting, you know, what the Longstreet is doing up on those hills over there, and, and uh, General Murchison is going through the woods, and he's hollering, oh, "They're going through the woods, Clarence," and that was considered, you know, really bad news. And they were treated like spies when they were hauled down. You know what you know what they do with a spy? Is bad, bad business. So that was an early U-2 pilot. It began to, you know, this whole thing. Of course, Icarus, we could bring him in, but. Uh, uh, have you ever flown in a balloon? Well, I, I was going to tell you about this friend of mine who I knew was uh, in, the, in the balloon, uh, was trained as a balloonist in the Navy. Now, these were free balloons. These were balloons that have that, that with the basket. That's called a free balloon. And apparently most of you are aware that a balloonist, you know, must be licensed just exactly the same way that a a pilot's license. You can get yourself a free balloon license. You pass an examination and so on to get it. You don't just get in a balloon and fly. Uh, did you hear about that guy a couple of years ago that got a whole bunch of little signal core weather balloons? Did you hear about that guy? Yeah, he bought them surplus. You know, you, you, you know on the silly page of the Times, where in the back it says balloons, one, uh, you know, one yard in diameter and all that stuff? Well, he got about 50 of these babies, and he filled them with gas, you know, the kind of gas they have down here in the park, cooking gas which makes a balloon lighter than air. And he filled them with gas, and he hooked them out to a wicker armchair. And they spotted him at 5,000 feet. Didn't you hear about that guy? An airliner flew past, and here's this guy sitting in a wicker chair at 5,000 feet. <laughs> well, you know, that's kind of hard for the for the airline pilot to get on the unicom and say, yeah, there's a guy sitting up here in some, some lawn furniture, and I don't know what he's doing. He's at 5,000 feet. Well, uh, they, they go... <laughs> Well, they grounded him, and they, they finally got him down. He flew five thousand miles. They finally pulled him down. He said he didn't know he had to have a license. He figured, you know, just you know, you can buy one balloon easy in the park. Why not buy a hundred of them and then hook them to your Ford and take off? But uh, uh, this balloon thing, uh, this the sailor that I knew. Uh, since uh, there is a great resurgence in balloon interest out here, I might as well start it right off. That uh, this this sailor. They used to go out on night trips. Now, you see, the thing about a balloon is they can't be picked up on radar. It's made out of usually pressed paper, that big envelope, or silk, uh, uh, which which has been impregnated with some kind of shellac, and it has a round surface, and most radar just, you know, bounces off of it. There's just nothing. They don't get any good signal, and, and, the, and the basket is made out of wicker, and the ropes are all made of nylon, and there's really very little metal on one of these babies, and so... They they uh, for some special missions, which I don't think they ever actually pulled off. They had a group of guys that were training to be free balloonists. Now they only flew at night, and so they would uh, they were training them, I believe, outside of Baltimore someplace. And so these guys would go up at night, and they would drift along. And you know, really good balloonists can control this baby. Uh, the, The control of a balloon is so delicate. You know the pictures that you always see of guys throwing stuff out of balloons—that never happens. I mean, uh, that a balloon, when it's at equilibrium, meaning that its lift is equal to the to the force of gravity, it just remains there. One teaspoonful of sand, just one, just dump that thing, she'll lift 50 feet. Yeah, you know, they're really accurate, and one tiny—they have those valve, so they can release a little bit of gas and they will drop 50 feet. And so this is this takes tremendous. Uh, tremendous skill to, to uh, pilot a balloon uh, the way she should be piloted, to get every last, because ballast is your cash in the bank in a balloon, so you don't throw bags of ballast out. Anybody that would throw a big bag of ballast out, whoosh, we'd shoot up like a rocket. And so they used to float along. Let me tell you what these guys would do. They would float along at two and three o'clock in the morning, maybe 50 feet above the ground, completely dark, and they would float out over places like uh, parks, and they would spot a lover's lane, and they would drift over. And here's this car down, and, and it's all parked. It's dark. It's two o'clock in the morning, and they would drift over, and they maybe forty feet above the ground. And he would fall right over the top of the car, and he would say, "Hey," and a voice would come out of the darkness, say, "I'm watching you." <laughs> There's a lot of guys suddenly became Christian scientists. And took the pledge of one kind or another when that voice they used to drift at night and talk to people and needle them. See, so they never know where they are coming from. It was fantastic. And all of the stuff they used to see. Well, I took a, well, you are listening, friends, if you're asking about how I know about balloons. A charter member of the American Balloonist Society. Me. That's right. And uh, there was one time I was deeply involved with the balloon world. And uh, one of my friends, the the guy that I got involved with, got me into this thing. His father was this famous balloonist who had these great stratospheric balloons. You know, the Picard family? Ever hear of Jean and Augusta Picard? Well, we got involved in these balloons. And one fantastically disastrous Sunday, I am standing out at 3 o'clock in the morning with my buddy. And for about 19 hours, they've been pumping gas into this great big bag and it's getting bigger and bigger and it's laying there on the ground It's outside of Philadelphia and a cold wind is blowing and finally she is tugging at the ropes and we get into the basket and he says all set and I said all set and we had a couple of spam sandwiches with us a little oval team and he says all right men and the crew was hanging on to the ropes it's an exciting moment He said all right cast off Up we went. Well, there was a cross current, and the basket of that balloon swung like a pendulum. It just went... Up we went, and we were looking straight down. The other way. I missed a chimney on a house by about six and a half inches. That chimney went right by me, and a lady came running out on her porch. She heard me, you know... and people are running around out of the streets, looking at us, because we came drifting out of what looked like a wood, you know, just out of the darkness. Well, we floated about maybe three hundred feet horizontally. We did not go up. We're floating about maybe seventy-five feet off the ground, and the balloon just keeps going. I've got I've got a hold of one side of the wicker basket. He's got a hold of the other side. Our crew is running along in the darkness below us. And then we gradually began to rise. She began to hit equilibrium. We drifted higher and higher. And now we are a 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet. And we're drifting out over the Pennsylvania countryside, just drifting in a three-colored balloon with great red and white and yellow stripes that had been, by the way, captured from the Japanese who had made this as a combat... You know, the Japanese made combat balloons? And ironically enough, the only place in America that was bombed by the Japanese during World War II was Oregon, where Lester Smith is tonight, with combat balloons, which came over on the big Japanese currents. And we are drifting high out over the Philadelphia, over the Pennsylvania countryside. And it's getting light out. And it's absolutely silent in the balloon, friends, because there's no sense of movement at all. Because you're moving with the wind. There's no wind pulling you or pushing you. And we could hear dogs, three thousand feet below, barking. Did you hear? Drifts up, and you could hear people talking in their backyards. They didn't know that we were up there, but the sound raises. Do you know that at three or four thousand feet above the earth? There is a sea of human sound, just a sea of sound. You'll never hear it in an airplane. You don't even hear it in a glider, because a glider has a a slipstream, wind. And you hear this great sea of sound. And somewhere out in the darkness tonight is a 63-year-old lady who refused to identify herself and who took a nip and flew out over Pennsylvania with two unidentified kids in an orange balloon. There ain't many of them.